beloved breakers, I am Mike Senior and I'm here with Berlin-based bebop botherer John Witten for the 34th episode of Project Studio Tea Break. Hello there, John. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. Hello, everyone. Now, just to clarify, does that mean I am someone who bothers bebops? I bother via the means of bebop? I'm going to need a little clarification on what exactly I'm being insulted as. I mean, I think it's a broad church, the bebop botherers. Right, okay. (laughs) Bother some people who remind you in some way or another Mm. of bebop. Well, I'm poorly arranged and vastly overrated, so I would go ahead and accept that critique. (sighs) Hello, Mike. Have you earned your tea break this month? I don't see you with a tea, so I'm wondering if that's a a guilty thing for you. Have I earned my tea break this month? We've heard stories of people upskilling during lockdown. You know, learning new languages, new instruments. Going into cyber. Knitting. Absolutely. Doing yoga and all this kind of stuff. Mm. But few can have enjoyed the levels of success that I've had. Oh, yes? Now, I have probably mentioned in the past how... I am a certifiable danger to the community while holding a soldering iron. I've seen the certificate, yes. (laughs) You've seen the news reports. (laughs) Well, I had my most successful soldering experience ever over Christmas. Incredible. And the stakes were high, believe you me. (laughs) The cat had chewed through our Christmas lights. Oh, dear. (laughs) In three places, no less. This is going better than I thought it would when you said the cat. At first, I thought you tried to fix the cat. (laughs) And, And that was already very upsetting but okay (laughs) so not once not twice but having done it twice the cat decided to really finish off the christmas lights with a third chew through yeah okay but i was able to repair them successfully with a soldering iron oh congratulations yeah i still made a bit of a mess and there was like insulation (laughs) electrical tape all over the place but (laughs) crucially nothing other than the solder got burnt (laughs) which i think has to be counted as a A lightly qualified success (laughs) and and at the end of the day the lights they turned back on oh they did they are okay ready and waiting i have upcycled my own Christmas lights. Well, or recycled them or something. <laughs> I was going to say, wait, so you're <laughs> saying that they are now, as artisan hand-mended Christmas lights, you feel they are worth more? Yeah, that's it, absolutely. <laughs> on the open market. I'm convinced that even more of the lights light than when I first bought them. <laughs> <laughs> I am sure that's how it feels. And yourself, have you been doing any tea break earning? Um, I think I have, for, for less exciting but equally technological reasons. Mm-hmm. It has become time for me to buy a new computer. Oh, crap. Crumbs. I know. Those are words to strike dread into the heart of any Project Studio operator. It's the least fun way to spend a substantial amount of money. <laughs> it's this experience of, you know, Googling what good computer music produce mm. and seeing a huge number of blogs and thinking, well, gosh, look, if I were Jeffrey Apple, head of Apple computers, <laughs> I would invest a couple of billion in making sure that the top results of this Google search were blogs favourable to me. And speaking as someone with several billion dollars, Jeffrey Google, Mm. uh, Jeffrey Apple, sorry, it's Mark Google. Yeah, well, obviously. I absolutely have the power to, like, buy out bloggers. Yes. So then I'm like, well, I should probably look into the specs and within about 20 minutes... I noticed that your beard's longer this month. Longer and (laughs) greyer. Within about 20 minutes, I was taking handwritten notes on how I was going to build my own desktop computer. Wow. Having been assured by people in the backwards of the internet, so I ran away from all the marketing stuff to like the, just the real... If Chekhov were still alive, that would be the beginning of a play. Oh, goodness me. And it wouldn't end happily. It, it, look. (laughs) It's like, why have a recipe for disaster on the stage if it is not to lead to disaster? If you're not going to bake up some disaster... (laughs) 
<laughs> at some point in the in the plate. Mm. You're absolutely right. So it's been hellish, and I've been absolutely certain I wanted a desktop because you're just old school that way. I am, and it's very hipster, and I like it. Is it in like a cassette Porter Studio box? <laughs> <laughs> It's one of those Fisher-Price um, sing-along radios, mm. which is a radio as well. So huge, huge value savings there. <laughs> but then, I don't know, people are telling me I need this or that. And, you know, 16 gigabytes of yeah. carburetor is probably enough. But then if you don't get 32 now, then maybe your sprangles will desprude. <laughs> yeah, this is the price I'm going to pay for wanting to run eight simultaneous auto-tunes on different tracks, <laughs> um, <laughs> which surely is a worthwhile life goal. So I have earned this strong Colombian coffee um, with my blood, sweat and tears. Now, following on from our exhaustive run-through of a few categories in the Grammy Awards, mm. now, I, I was intrigued because I thought, well, what's going to happen with John after this task has been accomplished? Mm. Is he going to go on some kind of a detox diet of no music listening for the next... <laughs> three weeks to try and get it out of his system? Or, or did you find yourself inexorably drawn back to certain categories or certain artists? Now, something I did go for is I, I had a deeper listen into a bunch of the artists I'd like, things like mm. Doja Cat and Dua Lipa and, and Anderson Pack as well. Yep. Park. Pack. <laughs> I've never heard him say it. That's true. It's P-A full stop A-K. Do you think it might be two syllables? Pack. For us, from now on, it's Anderson Pack. Yeah. I, I have made my decision. Makes it sound a bit Klingon, actually. Soch cham till we are. Oh, wow. If anyone actually knows what I just said, then you're a bigger nerd than me. <laughs> <laughs> And what I discovered, and this is perhaps unsurprising, what I discovered is that their Grammy-nominated songs were sort of the best ones. Oh, right. And it was a bit of a downhill slope from there. That's always disappointing, isn't it? It is disappointing, but it reminds me of this theory I, I once heard from a professor at Juilliard that Beethoven and Mozart and Brahms and Wagner should be kept in locked vaults <laughs> for people over 30. Okay. And that until then, we should only be allowed to listen to second-rate composers. Ah. Because if you use this stuff to kind of get you into classical music and then you kind of explore further, you'll realise that you've already listened to all the masterworks. <laughs> at a time when you couldn't appreciate them at all. If you were forced to endure just sort of sloppy counterpoint and tired kind of pastoral platitudes, mm. then when you finally unlock Beethoven. Yeah. Just imagine the, the joy and the drama. I wonder whether this um, Juilliard professor had the same experiences that I did busking his way through college on third-rate classical composers because no first-rate classical composers had ever written anything for two violins <laughs> beyond the Bach double. I was about to throw the Bach double in your face. And I have a very deep appreciation of third-rate classical composers Matsas and Pleyel, <laughs> who did reams and reams of the beggars. And they're just horribly pedestrian and dreadful. He was himself an oboist, <laughs> so it's very possible. The oboe trios that he cut his teeth on. <laughs> exactly. And he was... <laughs> He's a lovely, lovely man who I, I didn't learn under. We just met when I was working in New York one time. I mean, I wonder whether oboe players basically just take out all their aggression on the reed. <laughs> so they're always lovely. <laughs> Hence the bright red faces. I mean, you have to just to get a note out of the thing. Have you seen the pressure they apply to that? It's really incredible. Although, have you heard the shawm? S-H-A-W-M. A friend of mine plays the shawm. Oh, really? And he always said that the shawm was the only instrument that had two dynamic levels, which he said was too loud and off. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It's kind of blisteringly, walls of Jericho tumblingly loud <laughs> or in the box. <laughs> 
sorts of jokes. Are the two settings yes. that a shawm has. I mean, how can there be an era in which the vial, the quietest known instrument in existence, and the shawm can coexist? <laughs> you know, it's a very good question. But, I mean, stranger things have been tried. Brahms has got a, a trio for piano, I want to say viola? Yes. And French horn. Yeah. And French horn can go kind of soft in an orchestral setting, but next to a solo viola. I mean, even a piano is a tough call. <laughs> right? I mean, you've got to close the lid and put duvets on it to make any useful headway. <laughs> but I mean, maybe it is the kind of music that's designed to be played in a padded room. Right, because the people who play it... I mean, it's got a viola player, it's got a French horn player. <laughs> it's got a mad piece of composition. It's all the bits are there, really. I think you may well, you may well be right. How long did we get onto Shorms? Oboists. Oboists. <laughs> but I digress. And he had decided, this professor had decided to move into academia mm. when he was playing in a pit and he came across a marking on his score okay. which said, a la clarinetto. There wasn't an instrument change. He was just being asked to play as if he was playing a clarinet instead. And it was at that moment he realised that maybe his instrument was not being respected <laughs> in his current job. <laughs> We're not going to hire a clarinetist. We just prefer that you sounded like one. <laughs> which has since become my favourite score marking. You'll be delighted to know we've also had a message from our lovely patron, Rhino L. Oh, hello, Rhino. And he, he says, After seeing Mike's sizeable lead, I wanted to keep the horse race interesting. Oh, yeah. Thus, I cast my vote for John <gasps> and gave myself the task of justifying my choice after the fact. Okay, you know what? <laughs> I, I appreciate the support. It doesn't yet feel wholehearted and genuine. Now, I haven't heard the whole message. <laughs> it feels a little shotgun wedding-y. Again, I'll take it. We're not choosy. On you go, Rhino. And my justification? After viewing the top live video of the artist in question, <laughs> albeit... <laughs> albeit just for the few brief moments I could stand, the comment section was what settled my vote. The number of heartfelt comments about how much the music meant to those individuals sided me with John's enriching the world statement. Thank you, I guess. The, the, the inverted commas around artist are still stinging a little bit. Those are sharp <laughs> punctuation marks as they go. Though, he said as a postscript, though I can't help but wholeheartedly agree with Mike's peddling for cash. <laughs> So he's he's peddling enriching the world for cash. Thank you, Rhino, for your for the veiling of your contempt. <laughs> now the most famous loudspeaker, certainly in mixing circles of all time, mm. is Yamaha's NS10. I was going to say Yamaha NS10. It's kind of the first one that comes to mind. Now, do you know much about the NS10? Oh, I mean, what everyone knows. Um, <laughs> popular successor to the um, NT9. Um, uh, you know, very good at making the noises, jolly quiet when you want it to be, and awfully loud when that's the desired thing and makes it all sound like it. it is, I guess would be my summary. Well, in which case, you'll be glad to know that you are in the presence of, apparently, a worldwide authority on this speaker for several years. Ooh. Something I only discovered yesterday when I looked on Wikipedia and found that I'd been <laughs> quoted on the Wikipedia article. Oh, that's <laughs> rather nice. So, let's recap on a bit of information about the NS10. The NS10 was originally a hi-fi speaker. Right. Made by Yamaha in the 80s. Mm. And then, at some point in the 80s, and we're not quite sure when it was, early 80s, I would say, mm. an engineer called Greg Ledanyi used these speakers in a studio in Japan Mm. bought a pair and brought them back with him. Huh. Uh, and so a lot of people think that he is 
the one credited with introducing them to the, to the US. This is the mythos. But then they were taken up in the 80s by a whole bunch of big engineers, most notably Bob Clearmountain, mm. who was basically the mixer's mixer during the whole of the 80s. Okay. At this point, he started travelling around to different studios and other engineers followed his example. And of course, when he went to different studios, he would be taking his NS10s with him. Mm. And so studios, in order to attract engineers, began to stock NS10s so that they'd be able to attract these travelling engineers and they'd have this standard. And they became an industry standard. Right. In fact, long before Yamaha even twigged really what was going on. Interesting. They had not designed them for this purpose at all. But Yamaha ended up selling more than 200,000 speakers, which is a ridiculous number. <laughs> and they became pretty much a standard fixture in any studio in the 80s and 90s. My words. Yamaha kind of eventually cottoned on and did various like studio versions that were slightly quieter, slightly better power handling. Mm. They brilliantly did um, two different versions that I think there was a pro in a studio, one of which the only real difference was that all the legends were on sideways rather than vertically. <laughs> so Because people had used these speakers that were meant to be used vertically sideways on the meter bridge so that they could see out the control room window. <laughs> and so there's lots of like mythology and and, and kind of usage stories of which amp you use and which type of Yamaha NS10 you use. Mm. Which brings me to the great tissue paper controversy. <laughs> <laughs> what an odd collection of words. I'm assuming it refers to something, and we're about to find out what, but just what an odd collection of words. Early models of the NS10 in particular were very bright. Okay. And at some point, engineers started putting bits of tissue paper over the tweeters. Right. Just to slightly mellow out the sound. Now, uh, people have kind of attributed this to Bob Clearmountain, mm-hmm. but I've also heard a rumour, I don't know whether this is correct, this might just be a fever dream I had, <laughs> that Bob Clearmountain actually started it as a kind of a practical joke to catch out all the people who were copying him. <laughs> So that whenever he saw a picture of someone's studio that had tissue paper over the tweeter, he could quietly giggle to himself. They actually did it. But it gained so much currency in the 80s. All these discussions of what type of tissue paper you should use, whether it should be one ply or two ply, how it should be fixed to the tweeter. Oh my goodness. That in 1986... Wait, can I take a guess? Go on. Please tell me Yamaha released a pre-tissued edition. (laughs) Close, but not quite. We'll get on to this. Okay, okay. (laughs) In February 1986, Mm. an engineer and researcher, Bob Hodas, I think his name is, Mm. published a research study on it. Oh, my word. Okay, so this was a real thing. (laughs) Where he took an NS10 into a kind of a measurement situation Mm. and measured it with various different types of tissue paper. And I quote from his paper. Yeah. Kleenex pocket pack facial tissue. Gingham facial tissue, white. Nice and soft unscented tissue, white. Coronet facial tissue, new unscented, white. Charmin, new stronger than ever, yellow and blue. Family Scott, white. Northern quilted, yellow. MD unscented, white. And Scott issue, one ply. This is so (laughs) wonderful. I love that. There are, I think... 18 frequency graph printouts in this article showing the effects of these different things. And what's your takeaway, Mike? Well, his research finding was that putting tissue in front of your tweeter wasn't really absorbing high frequencies at all. Hmm. What it was doing was reflecting them backwards into the tweeter. Okay. And that was creating comb filtering in the high frequencies. Oh, because you had phase cancellation. So it was actually making it sound less good. Oh, wow. So his conclusion was, and I quote... Since nobody would put up with such aberrant behaviour in their main control room monitors, in other words, comb filtering, why should we go this route in a close field speaker? 
The result is a very crude and I would say undesirable method for dealing with the problem of a speaker being a bit too bright. Wow. If a little less high end is desired, how about a simple electronic filter that could be measured and controlled in a more reliable manner than the tissue fix? Well, that's very, very unpunk rock of him. Yeah. But I, I do appreciate the verve and passion in his denouncement. So this is, in a way, just the backdrop to our news story this month. Mm. Because the company of Vantone have pretty much built their business on recreating the classic Oratone 5C, which is the other most used mixing speaker of all time. Mm. And just recently, they decided to turn their expertise at recreating classic speakers on the MS-10, mm. in conjunction with the uh, mix engineer Chris Lord Alge. And they've created the CLA-10. <laughs> But like the NS10, it's a passive speaker. And of course, most people these days in project studios are using active models. So the latest announcement is the CLA-10A, which is active. Okay. And of course, on active speakers, you can have all sorts of controls on the back. Of course. So if you're going to hazard a guess, okay. what do you think might be the VTPC control? Oh, goodness me. Um... <laughs> <gasps> no, is it tissue paper? <laughs> Have they got an emulator? <laughs> it is the variable <laughs> tissue paper control. <laughs> and the snake has eaten its own tail. That's marvellous. So now, without any tissue paper getting involved, you can create that same non-linear comb effect. The thing is, I don't think it is. Right. Because on the Avantone website, it says variable tissue paper control... FC, so that's like characteristic frequency, mm. 1.8 kilohertz between plus 6 dB and minus 30 dB. So basically, it's a high frequency control. Right. So it's doing what people hoped the tissue paper would do. Yeah. But perhaps cleaner. I mean, I'm assuming it's some kind of filter, but it might even be just the tweeter level. I don't know. Because <laughs> 1.8 kilohertz could be the crossover frequency. I would love it if it was literally just a volume control for the tweeter. So my question to you was... Okay, okay, hit me. You know, we all have these things that we do in studios that aren't necessarily the way the gear was originally designed. Absolutely. And if Avantone are introducing their variable tissue paper control, <laughs> what other devices might there be that might need this extra control on them to simulate the effect of being misused? This would make an excellent Q&A section. Should we hold that down then and we'll have it as a Q&A in another month? I mean, I, yeah, I do kind of want to have a, a half a day for this to sit in my head. <laughs> to think about it. No, let, let, let's make this a teaser because there's already too many good ones in my head. <laughs> Go on then. Well, no, I feel like, I mean, I'm recording now into an SM58. Yeah. Which feels like the most used and abused microphone in the world. And that th there is a sound which is on a lot of live recordings and then I think for me moved into a lot of studio rock recordings yes kind of coming back with some modern rap stuff which comes from grabbing it by the golf ball and pressing the entire thing up to your mouth oh yes and so i think you just get like a silicon cup that goes on the end you just press your mouth into that instead but the idea is that you do it electronically oh so you just have a little knob on the microphone that enables you to get the rubbishy cupping your hand around it while using it more sensibly the grip and swallow which means you can go like a comfortable hand width away from it and sing normally but you still get the idea that it's like pressed up against your tonsils <laughs> um, i like that a lot yeah i would love that okay you give me one as well and then we'll we'll go full on we'll dive in well i mean following your story about the kinks putting pencils in their speaker cones you can have a you can have <laughs> yes. a control for the um, the size of the tear in the speaker cone <laughs> 
You know what? I'd like even more. Now, I know this is about digital recreations of analog things, but maybe we could go half and half. Mm. Maybe they just put some special little acoustically treated zippers <laughs> into the speaker cones. A cone with zippers in it. So you could just manually bring that up and down. I mean, that's so metal. I mean, I can't imagine a single metal guitarist not wanting that. Very gothy. More zippers. I mean, it's pretty much a mantra of any metal band. <laughs> So coming fresh from Mike sharing all his brilliant insight and knowledge of the news, it's time for me to share a time when I was an absolute idiot. So as, as I mentioned, I recently went to this residency. I had so hoped when you told me you'd been on this residency that this might be the source of more face palmage. Oh, Mike, we've got plenty. We've got <laughs> years. I was there for 10 days. Do you have any idea what kind of face palm density I can achieve in this sort of creative situation? Face palm saturation. But here's... This is just a taster. Here's a bonbon. An amuse-bouche. So this residency took place in what was a Polish palace sometime passing and is now a crumbling, falling down palace. Yes. It was not uncommon to wake up with a fair bit of brick dust. Oh, wow. Somewhere on the covers. It's like in the process of crumbling, not just formally having crumbled. Yeah, yeah. The interiors managed to be consistently colder than the exteriors. Yep. I, in the attempt to look vaguely presentable, had clean shaved my head just before arriving and forgotten a hat. Oh, God. So that was straight away. That's just the most foolish thing (laughs) anyone could possibly do. But the true idiocy was that I I took a huge amount of pleasure in the first few days Mm. singing quite a lot of countertenor. Oh, right. The highest male voice, because it's something that I hadn't done for a long time professionally since I trained. Yeah. And it was great fun getting involved in lots of different kinds of endeavours as the countertenor guy. Yeah. And work begets work. And before I knew it, I was engaged all over in, in projects performing. You were the first call Polish Palace countertenor. There you go. Of all the countertenors available, <laughs> I was easily the favourite. So that was that. And that was really lovely. And I was enjoying singing it. Yeah. Now, once again, freezing cold places to sleep. Mm. Late nights. Oh, right. No hat. Oh, the pieces are beginning to fit together. Yeah. So for the most part, we we kind of started on one Saturday. Most of the performances were the following weekend. (laughs) And all around me, I was watching the intensities of the process take its toll on everyone. Mm. But it manifests in different ways, doesn't it? You know, yeah. the acrobats were just like taking an extra strong coffee and pushing on and getting it done. Mm. The tailors were taking a bit longer over the clothes and maybe having to correct a piece. Yeah. The other singers, of course, were totally fine. I had basses who I knew who just got deeper mm-hmm. and richer and gravelier with each <laughs> bloody hangover. Yes. And for those of you who don't sing countertenor, it's the most impossibly temperamental voice type you can imagine. If the wind blows in the wrong direction, then there's just no sound up there. It's not a matter of it being creaky or crackly or airy. There's a reason why good countertenors are so rare and so well known. Yeah, okay, yes. And also why they can disappear overnight. You know, tenors, tenor penny. Oh, God, yeah. Tenors, hungover tenors. They just push a bit harder. Yeah. That's fine. They just kind of ground and 
belt it. Mm. None of these things are available to counter tennis. <laughs> so by about Wednesday, yes. I had a day just full of back-to-back rehearsals and I couldn't make a note. <laughs> At which point I essentially moved into a large blanket <laughs> with warm tea and 8pm bedtimes. Oh no. I mean, that's gutting, isn't it? Because you want to be there and just enjoy it as well as experiencing it. And then you manage to paint yourself into the corner of being the person who's the driver for everyone else. <laughs> you know, I like early nights and early mornings, but it was ridiculous. The, the work I had to do to coax this shy little voice back out of its hole. It's like wow. It's like a timid vole that once you've kind of given a little fright to with <laughs> staying up past 11 one night, it just refuses to come back. So did it actually come back in the end? Through strict discipline and the help of many wonderful friends and therapists who kind of got it there. <laughs> it did come back. The strangest thing though, which I haven't had before, Yeah, the top of it came back before the bottom of it. Wow. So I could get my highest notes fine Wow! come Friday morning. Isn't it a bit like playing the flute? Okay. That the middle of the flute register and the higher flute register is actually, it's easier to project and easier to create a clean sound than the very lowest notes. I think you may well be onto something there. Yeah, because that was what I had lost for the longest time. So I just had a big stonking hole in the middle of my range. (laughs) Some stuff I couldn't reach in chest voice, but couldn't get down to in... Oh, wow. So... I have to have to set out a huge thanks to Laura Wilson, a viola player who was accompanying me in one project, who just transposed everything a tritone up day of performance <gasps> so that I could... Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that was... Who says viola players are useless for anything? Well, there we go. Never again me. I'm kind of the mouse and the lion. I've been saved absolutely saved, rescued. You are the cheerleader for viola players. From now until forever. Yeah. I've always liked them. Violins are a bit screechy. Yeah, I agree. There's something rich and wonderful about violas. I think we are practically the violist apologist society. I think so. Heaven knows there are some apologies to be made. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. No, it's the old habits. (laughs) It's like a knee-jerk reflex, isn't it? Oh, dear. So, yeah. So, that was was my huge face palm, was not remembering that this voice would fly away very, very easily. So, fill me in here. Did you get any of the embarrassing yodels? Oh, like, for days of rehearsal. (laughs) Because I was trying to sing down. My voice is just cracking. It was like, "Uh, Tom, can you uh, just just a little bit under on that G-sharp? And um, (laughs) Ella, can you be a bit smoother in that thing? And uh, less yodeling, (laughs) John. The yodeling I could handle, because at least there was sound production. My very (laughs) least favourites was when I had exposed entries. Oh. And went over my mouth and go... <laughs> Just nothing there. <laughs> nothing there. Absolutely unacceptable. Oh, wow. So, yeah, a word of warning to all you counter tenors out there that thing is made of glass. Treat it as such. <laughs> Reaching into the capacious Project Studio tea break mail- mailbag. You see, I can't even say the word. It, it rebels against me even uttering such falsehood. <laughs> we must maintain the fiction. Reaching to the bulging Project Studio tea break post bag. Mm. We come up with this month's Q&A from Wilbert Greisman. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Wilbert. And he says, mm. Dear Masters of Breakage, which I, I'm not sure I like the tone right from the start, actually. Well, you know, I had to deal with a similar tone from Rhino at the beginning of the episode, so I think you can just sort of deal with it, Mike. That is true. That's what I, that's what I think. That's my, my personal feeling on the, on the issue. Okay. 
Dear Masters of Breakage, in your long and or illustrious Project Studio careers, <laughs> what? <laughs> I think we may be being outsmarted as we speak, which is, is not the most comfortable feeling. Anyway, um, uh, Project Studio careers, what have been your biggest, wait, you could do that? Moments. <laughs> Where your horizons have noticeably broadened musically or technically. I've got a lot. I saw that, that look of recognition on your face. Yes, grim, grim recognition. <laughs> I have to start with our joint favourite composer slash hacky arranger. The piece we discussed on this podcast where she just took a bunch of famous string works, found their best bits and jammed them together and won a Pulitzer, was it? Well, no, she won the Pulitzer for the Partita, which was the Arcapella one, and then she won a Grammy, I think, for Orange. For putting all the best bits of Ravel next to each other and, and spicing in some Debussy. And it's a great piece, similar with Max Richter recomposed, mm. but a delay on um, the Four Seasons, and suddenly <laughs> was like collecting royalties. It, it's a remarkable thing. And, and that, those for me were definitely moments of wait, wait. You can do that? But isn't that more of a, wait, you can get away with that? <laughs> <laughs> wait, you can call that composing? Yeah. O- okay. Although, I wonder if you relate to this one. There was a time in my youth when I realised that all of the hip-hop songs I liked, a lot of the rap songs I liked, a good chunk of the pop songs I liked were sampled mm. from older popular songs. Right. Um, Here Come the Men in Black. Yeah. It's a parody cover like yeah. Weird Al Yankovic does that and I know what he's doing yes and it's fine but Will Smith does that and no one ever says anything yes so if I just like a song but wish I'd sung it you can just do that apparently yeah so yeah I put those three in in a big category for me well hip hop has a definite one for me mm. and that is the Fuji's Killing Me Softly oh yeah when I first heard that record and it's pretty much just a beat and a small sitar sample, <laughs> and Lauren Hill, and that's it. I was going to say, you can't forget the sitar. And the thought that a record could be that little, hmm. that it was possible for a producer to go, no, that, that'll do, <laughs> and put out just a couple of things, yeah. and just by sheer force of personality say, this is a completed record, and everyone going mad because it sounded like nothing else <laughs> that had come before it. That was definitely a, what, you could do that? Yeah, absolutely, you can do that. <laughs> A mini one from me was definitely Beyonce's killer track where she rhymed minute with minute. Yeah. I can have another man in a minute. Matter of fact, he'll be here in a minute. Mm. And that one, that rhyme wasn't so much celebrated, but everyone just kind of accepted it. Yeah. No one made a stink about that, that she hadn't found a second word <laughs> with the same phoneme at the end. And that's the rule. Like, no one, no, no one said it, but it, everyone knows that you're not allowed to just put the same word twice. And then Beyonce, and suddenly... You can do that now. I, I guess you can. You see, maybe I've just missed read the Q&A mail here. He wants us to rephrase the you can do it with different stresses. You can do that. You can do that? You can do that? You can do that? You can do that. Oh, a great example of you can do that for me would be First Aid Kit, mm. who are a Nordic band. Yes. And they sing country music about country music things in Swedish accents. Oh, that's so cool. And it's beautiful and it's great and it took over Nashville for a while. Yeah, but what about the more technical side of things? You know, the, the more studio-based, you can do that moments. So I know that for me, when, when I first got into virtual instruments and there was definitely a time when everything out of the box would just come out way too hot. All the gains were maxed out mm. and it would just clip 
everything on the on the chain and then your channel mm. and so i would spend the first five minutes after loading any preset just like going through one by one and turning it down until you know i had a nice tone yeah you could hear what it actually sounded like then i'd work with that yeah and i think then dubstep happened <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was just like putting it in just like that and you'd look at the waveforms of these songs and it would just be a rectangle that lasted three minutes yes yeah and you know you do all that you mix like that and then at the very top you put a limiter and you can <laughs> apparently you can do that yes <laughs> like it turns out i mean actually i would say a really good example of that in practice isn't a dubstep track it's that one where Dizzy Rascal and the electronic producer Armand Van Helden mm. got together to do a track called Bonkers. <gasps> yes, I know this. And it is pretty much just a kick drummer bass and Dizzy Rascal rapping over it. And it is so loud mm. and so massively clipped. <laughs> I think its RMS value is only about two and a half dB below its peak value. <laughs> <laughs> that is remarkable. And you just listened to it and thought, blimey, they got away with it because the synth sound is supposed to be all distorted. They just let it be like that. Yeah. You can do that? Speaking of um, extreme production, I think it was Mr. Lonely by Akon. Uh, yes, another one, yeah. Which was mixed and mastered to be as loud as possible on mobile phone speakers. Oh, wow. And it was very loud when played out loud on a phone. And they did that just by knocking out everything below a certain threshold. So it sounded kind of rubbish yeah. everywhere else. But you would hear it everywhere on phones because it sounded more powerful than anything else. Yeah. Because everything else had all this bandwidth taken up by low frequencies. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? For me, I'm not sure if that was a you can do that. That was more of a, why'd you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can do that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, thank you. That was a stress on camera. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this brings us more into a kind of a technical field then, I suppose. Because mm. I have definitely had some of those jaw-dropping moments studio-wise. Mm. Like back, um, now this is going back a long time. This is, again, late 90s when I was working in a studio. Mm. I mean, this studio was an all-analog studio. But occasionally people will bring in a computer at the time. And even at the time, the idea of doing things in the computer and of, and of multi-track recording of any useful type using normal computers and things outside something like a kind of dedicated Pro Tools system was still cutting edge. Yeah. Anyway, the engineer on the session brought in his own computer system. It was one of those, I think it was one of those like boiled sweet style desktop Macs mm. with Logic version 4 in it. Wow. And it was just at the point at which they were really starting to get the multi-track audio bit of it sorted out. Yeah. Uh, and so he brought the system in mm. and I'm a bit of a manual reader anyway. And so I thought, well, if he comes in, it's probably worth me knowing what's going on here so i got the manual for logic 4 and read it my god that's such a strange sentence to hear today and so i kind of had an idea of all these kind of internal parameters that were of no use to man or beast inside logic <laughs> but he brought the system in and he originally thought well i'll just bring it in and maybe if we need to do any bits and pieces of editing or stuff we can do that mm. but the problem was that this band that we were recording mm. the producer had it in his mind that to get the biggest most powerful rock drum sound ever he had to use the biggest kick drum he could find okay and so he stuck this like 26 inch kick drum or something some huge kick, i mean i don't know the exact figures i think it was 26 inch <laughs> but he brought in this huge kick drum mm. sat it in front of the drummer who had never played such a big kick drum before no and needless to say 
the drummer's timing fell apart. Right. And so he was desperately trying to drive this kick drum and the producer wouldn't budge. Okay, it had to be this gigantic kick. And it was getting to the situation where the engineer and the producer could see that the timing wasn't good. <sighs> yeah. And there was no way that you could correct that using edits on tape without it taking months. Right. It got to the point where we were kind of at an impasse because we weren't getting results, the producer wouldn't budge. <laughs> and so... I kind of idly said to the engineer, a guy called Andy Scarth, lovely, lovely guy, one of the favourite people I worked with in the studio, mm. and so on the ball with his engineering. Mm. I said to him, well, could we like put the drums into the computer and maybe do that tape editing in the computer? He said, yeah, don't be crazy, that never worked. Because this was before any kind of beat detectiving or anything was standard practice at all. You couldn't read an article on how to cut up drums. Mm. And so I read the manual and I said, well, I'm pretty sure you could record all the drums in, group the tracks together, edit them as one, and we could quantize it. We could go through on each hit and just line it up to the grid. Mm. And he goes, well, I'm not sure it's ever going to work. But they were all kind of off in a, in a band meeting trying to work out what the hell was going on. And we had nothing to do. So I said, let's just give it a go. Kind of why not? Yeah. So we imported eight bars into his logic system <laughs> and manually chopped all the individual beats up yeah. and lined them up to the grid and then put a, like a little 20 millisecond crossfade before each one. <laughs> and we played it back for the first time and there was just, you could have heard a pin drop in the control room. And we both looked at each other and there was this sense of we are standing on the boundary between the era when we couldn't do this right and the era when we can and the, and the world has never been the same since even now just thinking about it i'm getting kind of goose flesh remembering the sensation yes of going this should not be allowed this should not be possible <laughs> this, is, this is too much power and so then we thought, well, that took us a while to do just that eight bars. So we were mentally doing the arithmetic and we were going, well, if we took the whole thing and it's like this many bars long, how long would it take us to do the whole thing? And we thought, well, no, if we do this, it's going to take us three days to do. So I said, well, hang on, maybe we can make the progress quicker. Mm. I know that in Logic there are macros where you can chain keyboard shortcuts together. Right. And maybe we can use strip silence then to get all the trigger points without having to do all the chopping manually. And so we slowly refined this process into a quasi-automated process where you were able to strip silence, auto-generate all the regions, yeah. quantize all those regions using Logic's quantize routine and automatically fill the gaps and do the crossfades. That's quite something. And I think... In the end, I might have been one of the very first people to write about how to automatically beat match drums in SOS. Which is so universal now. I mean, so I'm potentially to blame. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't like quantized drums, then it's my fault. <laughs> and, you know, all this time later, it is... I mean, I could make it one, but in my workflow, it is three keystrokes. Yes. It just goes where I want it to. Oh, yeah, we'll just fix that thing that was completely unfixable 30 years ago. <laughs> The other thing that astonished both Andy Scarth and I was not just that it worked or that we could do it, but that because of the way short edits and crossfades are kind of masked ahead in time by transients, this kind of pre-masking effect psychologically, mm. the edits were inaudible. Because mm -hmm. we'd heard edits done on tape where you can hear the edits a little bit and they're not that good, <laughs> but you'd kind of cover over them and you, once the guitars were in there, you wouldn't notice. Mm. But we were listening in solo and you just couldn't tell that we noticed it. That was the thing that was so incredible about it. I, got, I remember vividly learning how to crossfade and then turning up my headphones and trying to hear my own edit points mm. and realising that what if you got it right, that there was just no way of telling. Mm. It's kind of like someone telling you, hey, here's a way to delete fingerprints. 
completely. 100%. <laughs> yes, it's this awesome power that you feel is going to be misused. Yes, I can drum literally any rhythm in the world. There is no drummer who can drum a rhythm that I cannot also record myself drumming. Yes. It's like, I've discovered this great thing. It's called gunpowder. <laughs> Yeah, that does sound powerful. About about 10 years ago, I was singing for a producer and it was very proggy and there was this top note, top of the phrase that I just couldn't hit Mm. with the power that he wanted. Yeah, yeah. So he told me just to sing that very highest note on the same pitch as as the note preceding it, which was a tone lower. So I I kept the lyrics and stuff and I just kind of sang it there. The tune wasn't as good, but I thought, you know what, this guy knows what they're doing and I'm not going to get that note today. It's all right. I'm already kind of at my top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go through to the control room and, you know, I wouldn't have minded if you'd fired up whatever Melodyne was at that point or if he'd like, yeah, I don't know, lit a Bunsen burner under something green and bubbly, something that showed some <laughs> sort of effort. But he just went snip, snip, dragged the pitch up a tone yeah, and then played it. And there I was singing that note I couldn't sing. Yes. And it made me furious. <laughs> because I, what, what, am I, what am I doing here? Yeah. <laughs> it's like all these decisions I'm making have suddenly become contingent. Yes. I have no permanence anymore. What I want from you as a producer is to make me a bit louder when the drums get louder. That's your whole job. (laughs) Well, I mean, that actually brings me on to my other main you-can-do-that moment. Oh, yeah. Which was sitting at the Frankfurt Music Messer. And there'd been an announcement mm. that Solemony were going to have a press conference. So we all kind of turned up thinking, oh, well, they're going to be announcing that, pff, I don't know, they've got general MIDI integration in their pitch-shifting software. <laughs> and it turned out to be the DNA polyphonic pitch correction. No, I remember that coming out. And I was there with a bunch of hardened, fag-smoking music journalists. Mm. We are all kind of lolling around in our chairs. <laughs> and the, the cheerful guy from Solemony kind of rocks up. And first of all, he explains roughly what he's going to do. And we're all going, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and then he plays the thing. Yeah. And you could practically hear the jaw sitting the floor around the room. Yeah. Instantly, you could hear everyone's minds leaping 30 years into the future and going, this is now possible. Therefore, all these other things are going to be possible. There you go. There you go. Nothing is off limits now. And in fact, I reviewed it for Sound on Sound when it first came out. Mm. And I mean, I was pretty mind blown by the presentation, but I thought a little bit, well, I think some of the artifacts will become a bit audible, you know, once you start pushing it, whatever else. Yeah. And then as part of the article, the example that blew my mind completely was that I took a movement of a Mozart string quartet. Yeah. And I flipped it into the minor. <laughs> and you could not hear it. Yeah. That was the point at which my mind was officially blown. Yeah. You know, you've got pre-Melodyne DNA and post-Melodyne DNA world. As you say, you can take that and you can make it minor. You can take songs that are from wax cylinders and just change up the tune on them. You can mm. reharmonize Beatles songs without changing any of the instruments or their players. And the thing is that developments in this kind of field have led to so many also pretty impressive things like the ability to like take vocals out of their backing track right they, they've done various kind of remixes they did a Vera Lynn one didn't they where they took her out of an old recording and reorchestrated and they did, they've done it with Elvis too yes and on the face of it if that had been the thing we turned up and listened to at the show we'd have been equally impressed by that but somehow DNA was that first moment that showed you that something that was officially impossible before that had become possible and now all the other kind of incremental things have never had quite the same romance to them yes exactly ah oh, the romance of polyphonic pitch shifting <laughs> Well, I think it's because once you can take a, an orchestral recording and just retune the oboe, I think the lines between 
live recordings and something from the Vienna Symphonic Orchestra sample library, it just gets very blurry. Yes. And once those things are mixed, what jump in music processing software could amaze me now? Mm. That's maybe a question for you as well. A believable synthetic voice. Oh, yeah, you know, and, and Alexa and Google Assistant and stuff aren't there yet. It won't be long, but to get a believable synthetic singer that doesn't sound like it's auto-tuned. God, that would be out there, wouldn't it? But at least when it does happen, it'll be all those monotone rappers and overtuned pop artists and third-rate country artists who'll be up against the wall first. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to get a synthetic Tom Waits anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Now that we are away from the uh, festive mince pie and the slice of Christmas cake, we return to the traditional breakfast food vehicle. It's time for our jam. Uh, But what would jam be without a slice of buttered toast? So uh, let me just grab hold of my toast, my warmed butter and a knife. And here we go. There we go. Well buttered. It feels like a very... Almost unsettlingly smooth piece of toast. I mean, that flour has been milled more than I think flour perhaps should be milled. It is remarkably sleek. It looks like PVC (laughs) and and spreads like it's just sleek and smooth. The the knife kind of flies off at the end of each... um, It's time to break the fiction here. That wasn't actually toast. Like... (laughs) I wanted to because we've moved into the digital realm and we obviously we spent a lot of time in the analog foley. Yes. I wanted to I wanted to combine them somehow. Oh wow, great. And I wonder if you'd care to take a stab at um what particularly genius excellent way I did that. Could it have been some kind of a synth noise modulator or something being triggered by something? You know what? You're close. Right. The sound source, I can tell you, is a white noise video on YouTube. Played on my phone uh, with my finger going up and down off the speaker. <laughs> okay, that was rather good. <laughs> it was the trigger slash filter. So yeah, that's our toast for this month. Because I, I don't know if you ever have just lain in bed listening to music and like doing your own little remix, <laughs> kind of with this heavy low pass filter that you get from chucking your finger on it. And then you can do yeah. kind of rhythmic things and kind of slow upwards resonant filter sweeps cupping your hand in different ways lockdown's been long hasn't it (laughs) (laughs) lockdown's been jolly long (laughs) but for real you can get some pretty cool remixes and if you have two phones you can start some like alan watt lecture on one of them and then just kind of flash him in sometimes oh wow kind of do low pass and alan watt speak and gradual kind of build up as you go back to the um the break you're a telephone dj is basically what you're trying to say yes i i am a ahead of my time telephone dj now speaking of creating moving musical effects through the simplest of means i understand you have jam for this toast i do and i understand that you have just consumed the media i chose to share so for those of you who don't know my jam this month is mitski who's an artist it's specifically a solo concert she gave for NPR about five years ago. It's her and a guitar and she sings. And please, before you skip ahead and turn off because I'm talking about someone singing with a guitar. Because <laughs> I almost did when you mentioned it to me. I was going to say, even Mike. I had the look of dread on my face when you said, look, it's a young female singer-songwriter with a guitar. I thought, oh God. I could just see it in your eyes. You said, look, John, I have stuck with you through Caroline Shaw. I have endured (laughs) with you through Iron Audi. But, you know, this far and no further. 
she's incredible. And she is a brilliant example of, wait, you can do that. Yes. For me. Yes. She plays in an open detuning on her guitar. She sings beautiful, so like sometimes punk and loud, sometimes really soft and heartbreaking. I mean, I have to say, for a single, rather slight looking woman with a guitar that looks like it's a bass because she's so small in relation to it, <laughs> she has done a concert that is more punk than I've seen in a long time. Just in pure ethos. Right. She can go. I have one bar chord shape and I'm going to use it mm-hmm. to knock your socks off yeah I'm going to use the heck out of it the last song she plays in this concert is called Liberty Bell and it's lovely and there's a moment where it goes to the sixth chord of the minor key and the melody hits kind of the minor third of that the one of the key mm. if we're in C major then it would be her singing a C over an A chord and that's cool. But of course, she's got this guitar tuned in a major shape. Mm. So if I were playing for her and we got to this part of the song, God, there's all sorts of things you could do. Like it's difficult to voice minor chords in an open major tuning, but there's ways of doing it. Yeah. Or if she wanted something that sounded more barry, I could just raise the third by a semitone, give it a suspended fourth. Yeah. Because the problem is you don't want a major third on a guitar with a minor third sung in, in the melody, that's going to sound weird and gross. You could extend the chord with sevenths to make it sound like a, a sharp nine or a minor flat 11. Or you could just do the old jazz vamping trick of putting so many notes in there, no one could work out what the chord is anyway. Absolutely. Like, there are a hundred different ways I could fix that problem for her. Let me guess. <laughs> <laughs> She's not going to concede to your soft liberal attitudes. Thank God, I was not in a position to help her yeah. as she wrote that song. Because what she does is she uses the same one-finger bar chord that she uses throughout the entirety of every song. And she plays a major of the sixth chord and she sings the minor third. And it hurts and it's beautiful and it's perfect. I mean, what a singer she is. She has the most rock and roll falsetto I've heard in a long time. Oh, it's gorgeous, isn't it? It's like, how can you be singing punk and hit a falsetto and it sound right? Yeah. And she does. And she has so much control up there. And Brilliant. You know, this contrast between what feels like an incredibly developed voice and guitar, which has a technique that you could learn in an afternoon. Mm. It's hard to say without sounding derogatory, but, you know, the, the, the problem is that then most people try and do different stuff on top of that, and yeah. she just doesn't, and it works so well. Yeah. And I don't know why, and it's upsetting, and I didn't know you could do that. It's the kind of Bob Dylan school of harmonica playing translated to guitar. Yes! Yes! Exactly. <laughs> Good. Um, <laughs> sorry. I, uh, one day we'll have a vote about Bob Dylan. Um... <laughs> But yeah, I totally agree with you. It's that ability that I don't have to do something in a committed way and know that it is enough and to stop at that point. It reminds me of the Fuji's thing that you were talking about, the Killing Me Softly. Yes. Of just like a drum machine and a brief sitar sample Hmm. and saying, no, 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 this is the song. Yeah. And yeah, the the confidence to be like, no, I play it like this. Yeah. Yeah, but John would butt in. Yeah, but if you just put this finger there, it's really going to help. Because you see, Mitsuki, just listen a moment. There's a thing in music (laughs) called an augmented octave. You really don't want it. And you maybe can't hear it, but you've got one in your music, so I'm going to help you take it out. Yeah. Why do I learn this stuff? Why do I know this stuff? (laughs) When actually it's incredible, it turns out. You just needed someone with the courage to do it. Yes. But this is an important point. And it ties in with something I was doing just the day before yesterday. Mm. I have been going through 
my mixed reference collection. Oh, yeah. You know, these commercial tracks that I keep deliberately to make me feel sad every time I work on something because they're so much better than what I'm doing. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, yep, absolutely. An important part of anyone's toolbox. And so I, I've been feeling kind of masochistic over the last year and have been going through pretty much everything I've listened to in the last 10 years and just fishing out all the good stuff to try and update my mixed reference collection. Right. And as part of this, I've put in a couple of tracks that are specifically there to kind of remind me to try not to do that thing you're talking about. Yeah. The one I've got that I literally was just writing about was Chris Stapleton's Either Way. I don't know it. It's just brilliant. But it's basically Chris Stapleton and a guitar. Okay. And it's this bruised, fragile, heartbreak song where he's kind of saying that it's got so bad now, this relationship that they're kind of blindly going through that no matter what happens, he's never going to love this person he's singing about. Right. And the thing is, it has these huge dynamic changes in his voice. Yeah. And when he's singing the quiet bits, he's kind of mumbling and you're losing syllables and you're really having to hunt to find out what the lyrics are. Mm. And I know that I would have killed this song. <laughs> right. And that I now have it as part of my reference collection to try and remedy my internal micromanaging tendency. Right, yeah. Of overdoing stuff. Of going, oh no, but we can't hear that syllable. We've got to turn that up a bit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and that one's a bit loud. And and actually that guitar chord, it, there's a bit of fret buzz on it. If we took one from the second chorus and popped it in, <laughs> and then it would come out sounding like Barbara Streisand, and, <laughs> and I wonder where the music's gone. Chris, darling, Chris, <laughs> darling, it's lovely, but we're just not getting all of the concert Okay, can you just do some mouth warm-ups maybe and then we take it again? It's a beautiful song, but I just want to hear it, okay? Thank you. Oh, and you just think... God, yeah. There are people who just have got that plot a lot better and it's kind of humbling as well watching something like this, like this NPR concert and thinking, there are so many ways in which I could have cocked this up. Yes, yeah, that I would have if I'd been involved. And I only realised the depth of my folly upon seeing what happens when I didn't get the opportunity to do that. Yeah, yeah. And just like in case it hasn't been hammered home it's one chord in one voicing yeah a single finger six string bar chord a bit of finger picking in there yeah this is her whole not her whole song her whole set yes and you know she has a canon of music she does other things yeah but do you think she has a guitar with a different tuning <laughs> for, for other songs no that'd be jazz this this takes me back actually <laughs> to our talking about your story about the dawn of easily quantizable drums mm -hmm. and i wonder how much has been lost to the world from someone being able to say oh don't worry we'll we'll buff that out effortlessly <laughs> i mean god i was listening because you know it's lockdown i was listening to a bunch of isolated guitar tracks from red hot chili peppers okay and this isn't like alternate takes this is what's on the album they're messy as hell yeah i'm not just talking about bum strings which do get whacked a fair bit but just like even the tempo it's not kind of wolfpack funk yeah. locked <laughs> in the pocket it's yes well, I don't know, li me listening to it, I would say it's sloppy, which is a way I would have ruined that album. Yeah. Because yeah. it's amazing. So, I, God, I don't know what the answer is. But... but I think the answer is what you're doing. Right. Rubbing your own nose in the result of what happens when you don't cock it up. Right. It's the same reason I've got that Chris Stapleton record. And in fact, an Anderson Pack record too, in my reference collection. Oh, do you remember which Anderson Pack? Room in here. Right. And again, it's just one of those records where I think, 
There are so many things you could have done to tidy this up and make this more consistent or whatever, and it just sounds messy in a beautiful way. Mm. About, it's the same, actually, I've got that first Royal Blood single for the same reason. Right. Which sounds pretty ropey. Yeah. You know, their second album sounds so much better, but that record would have sounded worse no matter what I did to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sure you know the, um, I'm not sure, perhaps you know the Coco Chanel quote. When putting on accessories, take off the last thing you've put on. And I wonder what it would do to my practice to, once I finished a song, just mute all the FX (laughs) on the key tracks, you know, or just bypass the last six plugins I've installed and listen to that instead. (laughs) Maybe they could actually actually be built into your DAW, (laughs) that you had the first two slots and then there was a kind of a visible line and anything below those two slots... Just before you bounced, it would be bypassed. Yes, yeah, you could. You would have one listen through, kind of without any of that stuff. I would love a Reaper macro. I may even have to have a Google to see if this exists, because I wonder if it's as much about the last ones. I would like one that bypasses three plugins at random, and it doesn't tell me where they are, and I can just audition between those two and see whether you notice, yeah, or whether it improves it, and then have a second keystroke, which if I haven't noticed. I just press that one and it deletes those plugins. Well, Paul White from Sound on Sound, who was used to do the studio SOS visits, mm. said that uh, on several occasions, you know, he'd, he'd look at this person's mix session and just as a preparation for working out what was going wrong with this mix, he'd just bypass all the plugins and then the person would come in with the tea and go, oh, wow, that sounds great. What did you do? <laughs> <laughs> so yes, that is Mitski. Uh, it's an NPR Tiny Desk concert. If you Google M-I-T-S-K-I, all one word, she comes up straight away. Or alternatively, you could head over to projectstudioteabreak.com and sign up to our mailing list. You absolutely could. Where that link, amongst many others, will be included. More to the point, you should. I think. I I send this one out, especially to anyone whose computer is starting to freeze from the number of plugins you've added and it still doesn't sound like you want it to. (laughs) Go blast this on the biggest speakers you have and then... Repent. Repent, yes. (laughs) scourge yourself of your sins we do have a newsletter as mike says which you should absolutely sign up to you can also connect to the two real life celebrities that are mike and john on our facebook which is facebook.com forward slash p s t b books and our twitter uh, which is p s t b tweets uh, we also have an email address so far as i know tbreak at projectstudioteabreak.com but what about mike i want to speak now to the listeners who've enjoyed this but this one a little bit more. Well, I know that feeling. That is after that. Maybe maybe another biscuit with the tea. In which case, they should head over to our Patreon page, mm. where there have been exciting extras this month. In fact, not just patron-only extras. Ooh. There's been Ooh. a bonus extra half-hour section on our Grammy Award nomination discussion that was posted for free on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Project Studio Tea Break. Okay, so everyone can get those last hot predictions, which you will actually have access to the answers when this one comes out, dear listener. Yes, indeed. As it's at the end of the month, and then next month we will have a post-mortem. But also for patrons, there is exciting coverage of the Leopard Pistol Continuum, <laughs> Good. Bieber's Golden Territory, and a Moon-Faced Idiot. <laughs> so it is all, we, we left it all on the field this month. It's all up there. So if you would like to patronise us, either fungibly or like Rhino did at the beginning of this episode. Or like a Q&A correspondent. There are so many valid ways of patronising us. 
Uh, <laughs> please do head on over there. Uh, have you got anything to plug? Well, I, I should thank our kind sponsor for this month. Of course. The entirely non-fictitious D-Clicker Mouse Company. Very real. Extremely real. They're dedicated to improving studio ergonomics and reducing the strain on musicians' fingers. Oh, yes. Obviously, you're doing a lot of clicking and mousing around and, you know, the recipe for tendonitis. Mm, so it is. So, they have a new special three-button mouse design. Okay. Which has a, a special extra thumb button. Uh-huh. And every time you click on the button, it double clicks as if you're clicking with the left <laughs> mouse button. A double click click. And according to their research, this means that on average, you're reducing your index finger clickage by more than 50%. And overall clicking is reduced by a third. What, what a figure. What calm index fingers. Mm-hmm. Picture all the producers and engineers who will now have so much more energy for idle fader flicking, <laughs> directing interns to get them coffee, uh, other index finger heavy tasks. All the home recording finger picking banjo players who will have extra energy to increase the tempo. <laughs> In fact, I think we will see just a general banjo speed increase across the board that the industry has been crying out for for so long. Well, thank you so very much to them for uh, for sponsoring this episode to the tune of several million euros, I, I think. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And thank you to you listeners for tuning in again for a brand new year full of the usual rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> More of the same. So with that, ta-ra, pets. Ta-ra. Ta-ra.